Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. It's the Wall Builder Show. We're taking on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective, and all of those are going to be included in our topic today. We'll get to that a little later in the program, but guys, it's February. We're doing these really cool heroes of history. Tim, who is our topic today? Our hero today is Phyllis Wheatley, and Phyllis Wheatley, uh, some people might be familiar with her. There's a few of these heroes we talked about that someone might have some general information about, but probably don't know a lot of details of their story, and that's where we wanted to go back and highlight something about them. So she was the first black poetess in American history. What's really remarkable about it is that uh, she was actually from Africa, was brought to America as a slave. Uh, historians think somewhere between the ages of six and eight years old is when she arrived. She arrived on the slave ship. Phyllis, the Wheatley family are the ones that brought her in. And technically, Mr. Mr. Wheatley bought her as a slave, brought her in. But he had two uh, children, a twins, a daughter and son. And he tells them that they need to oversee the education. They begin educating her, but not just in English. Because back then, education was much more encompassing, and so it's it's English, and it's Latin, and it's Greek, and I imagine there's probably some Hebrew in there. And, and then they get into mathematics and algebra, where she is so brilliant that in a matter of a year and a half, she's pretty much mastered the English language. She's already reading classics, classics in English, learning Latin. I mean, just incredible stuff. Uh, it ends up doing poetry, and Dad really became pretty significant and famous in her own right and some of the people she got connected with historically. Yeah, there's some big names she's connected with, including the, the royalty in England. She was actually taken to England, introduced to, to the king, queen over there, uh, became well-known. Uh, her poetry was picked up by one of the, the leading um, names in England, and, and the Countess, Selena Countess of Huntington helped that, that poetry go across the world. But she was good friends with George Washington and with George Woodfield and with so many others. It is amazing the, the heights to which she rose. And even in the case of Washington, she wrote a poem about Washington. Washington saw it, loved it so much, he asked her to come to the encampment in Boston when they were fighting the American Revolution and read her poetry to the officers. So the, those the poems that she did, she was kind of like the first USO for, for officers there, and that she took her poetry and read it. So she really was connected with some high names in American history and global history. Well, the end of her story is very sad. Uh, the, the way that uh, there was a, a, a gentleman came along, one of the quarter, they got married, and then he took out loans in her name, really stole all her money, left her in despair. She ends up dying in poverty. Um, over time, she had had three kids. Two of them died in infancy. Then the third one died basically the same time she did. Uh, she and the third child were buried together. It's a very sad end. However, what's significant about her is she's someone who broke glass ceilings in the, the bigger picture paradigm of American history. So really someone that is worth remembering, worth noting. And, and all, all these we have available on Wall Builders' website, wallbuilders.com. It's the American Hero series. And, and there's way more to the story than, than we've explained today, but she's certainly someone worth remembering. You know, and add to it, she died young, but she died a Christian. And she said that was one of her proudest things was that even though she came to America as a slave and was freed, she found Christ in America. So she was a strong Christian poetess, and even dying at a young age, she did have a strong relationship with Christ. All right, guys, well, that's our, our fourth hero of the month. And for folks that uh, maybe missed last week, uh, you can go listen to those programs in the archive section of our website. 
at wobbleslive.com and catch up on those. But we've got a lot more of those stories to share with you throughout the month. Now, later in the program, guys, we've got Professor Daniel Drosbach back with us. And, uh, of course, been on the program several times. Lots of great, great books we want to share with folks. And you guys have collaborated in the past. But he's made a discovery that is really, really neat uh, on a painting that hangs at the United States Capitol. Yeah, there at the U.S. Capitol, there's a lot of large, oversized paintings. Uh, there's eight in the rotunda that are 14 feet high by 20 feet wide. But the biggest one that I've seen at the Capitol is 20 feet high and it's 30 feet wide. It's at the landing of a stairwell outside the U.S. House chamber, and it is a signing of the Constitution. There's 39 signers and the Secretary of the Convention, um, William Jackson, and all 40 are painted there. And the guy who painted it did immense research, and all those guys went back to all the portraits that were known, all the documents back in that day. It's a fabulous painting. And as many times as I've seen that, Tim and I have probably been to the Capitol a thousand times easy. Uh, we use that slide of that painting all the time, probably 20, 30,000 times we've used it. And we've never noticed what Daniel Dreisbach discovered in that. And I, when he let me know about that, he also pointed out that he asked the, the historians there at the Capitol, and none of them were even aware of it. And they're the historians there taking care of that picture. But it is a great find by Daniel Dreisbach. It is in the Constitutional Convention. There is an open Bible, open to Matthew 5, on the tables as indicating their deliberations and what they've done. It's, it's really great. It's part of the painting. It's a, it's a neat thing. Well, it was really funny what Daniel sent us the article. Uh, and he said, hey, you know, you guys probably already know everything in here, but just wanted to share it with you. And we read it, and both of us were kind of like, you know, I don't know that we knew everything in there. There definitely is some some information that you're bringing to our attention. And, and of course, we began corresponding with Daniel and said, man, this is incredible. Great job on his history and research. And one of the things that we have known for a long time was the influence of the Bible on the foundations of America, the influence of the Bible on the founding fathers, the influence of Christianity on the founding fathers. And yet we, as many times as you've mentioned, have been in the Capitol. And, and in fairness, I've probably only been in the Capitol hundreds of times. I don't know if I've been there over a thousand. You easily have. But we've been there a lot. And, you know, if you go in the rotunda, there's some of the massive paintings. And in the rotunda, people are encouraged to take pictures. But where this painting is, it's in a place where photography is not allowed. And so it, it does make sense on some level that some of this could have been overlooked over time because it's just not as prominent. However, if you look up the signing of the Constitution or the Constitutional Convention, this is this is pretty much the most significant painting. And then usually we're seeing it, that painting on a, a much smaller scale. And so it's maybe easier to not know what that book is on the table. But when Daniel wrote this article explaining the history he had found, the history of the painting, and then certainly tracking the influence of the Bible, it was something we thought, okay, we, we definitely need to get him on the program. And let's talk about this article because it really does a great job telling some of this incredible history of our nation. Dan is a professor at American University. He's a great guy. He's got great books out. Um, he's he's just, we're a fan of, of Dan. He's what an academic should be. He's fair. He's balanced. He he. He is a God-fearing guy, and he brings truth out in a way that is new for a lot of academics, but we really love him. And so this is going to be a fun interview. Very, very rare for us to be uh, talking positively about a college professor. So this is a unique program. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back on The Wobble Show. This is Tim Barton from Wall Builders with another moment from American history. In 1963, the United States Supreme Court decided that voluntary Bible reading could no longer be part of the school day. Founding Father Benjamin Rush, known as the father of public schools under the Constitution, 
pointedly warned that the Bible should be read in schools in preference to all other books. He specifically warned that if America ever ceased promoting biblical principles in schools, then we would waste so much time and money in punishing crimes and take so little pains to prevent them. He was right. We now have 7 million Americans in prison, on probation or on parole, and the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Sadly, this was unnecessary, but is the result of no longer teaching the morals of the Bible in schools. For more information about the Founding Fathers' views on the positive impact of the Bible in schools, go to wallbuilders.com. Hi friends, this is Tim Barton of Wall Builders. This is a time when most Americans don't know much about American history or even Hebrews of the faith. And I know oftentimes for parents, we're trying to find good content for our kids to read. And if you remember back to the Bible, to the book of Hebrews, it has the Faith Hall of Fame where they outline the leaders of faith that had gone before them. Well, this is something that as Americans, we really want to go back and outline some of these heroes, not just of American history, but heroes of Christianity and our faith as well. I want to let you know about some biographical sketches we have available on our website. One is called the Courageous Leaders Collection. And this collection includes people like Abigail Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Francis Scott Key, George Washington Carver, Susanna Wesley, even the Wright brothers. And there's a second collection called Heroes of History. In this collection, you'll read about people like Benjamin Franklin or Christopher Columbus, Daniel Boone, George Washington, Harriet Tubman, Friends, the list goes on and on. This is a great collection for your young person to have and read, and it's a providential view of American and Christian history. This is available at wallbuilders.com. That's www.wallbuilders.com. Welcome back to the Wobbler Show. Thanks for staying with us. Always good to have Professor Daniel Dreisbach back with us. And, uh, man, it's been way, way too long uh, since we've had you on the program. So enjoyed having you on in the past, all the different books and things that you've done, and uh, just appreciate what you do. And now you've got a great story out about the Constitution signing painting that hangs in the Capitol. Thanks for coming on, Daniel. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Well, uh, this one's uh, this one's a little bit different. Now, people initially, when we say painting of the founders, they typically think of the signing of the Declaration painting. But there is one of the Constitution uh, that's not in the rotunda at the Capitol, but but it's in a pretty unique spot and has some really unique things in it that might tell a little bit of the story we haven't uh, we haven't talked about before. You're absolutely right. Uh, I've written this article, which is a, about a painting, but more importantly, I think it's a story about the the Constitution. And, of course, the Constitution was uh, was written in Philadelphia's Independence Hall in the summer of 1787, and it was signed by 39 delegates to that convention on September 17th, which is uh, the day we commemorate as Constitution Day. And uh, in, in the mid-1930s, Congress had com- uh, created a committee to to plan the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. Um, one of the chairs of that committee had looked around the Capitol building and said, yeah, we have this painting here of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but we don't have anything here to commemorate the signing of the Constitution. And so Congress commissioned a, a very successful artist of the day, a man by the name of Howard Chandler Christie, to paint a, a, a work depicting the signing of the Constitution. And it's a massive work. It's 20 by 30 feet. Uh, so it, it takes up a lot of wall space there in the Capitol. So th- th- this is not uh, just a little, uh, you know, <laughs> a little, little portrait you hang on the, you know, the, the, the wall in your living room. This thing takes up that entire staircase area when you're uh, w- w- when you're coming up there at the Capitol, but it's so detailed, and it's got you know, it's it's kind of like how Trumbull did the Declaration and the other paintings. It's basically like you're looking at a port, uh, you know, literally a picture of these guys. 
You're absolutely right. In, in my opinion, uh, I don't think there is a work of art that does a better job using composition and symbolism to tell the story of the framing and the signing of the Constitution. Now, Christie, the painter, uh, he was a, a famous illustrator, and he had a real eye for detail. And not only did he have an eye for detail, he engaged in some painstaking research uh, in, in uh, his preparations for painting this work. Uh, for example, uh, he studied every known uh, portrait of of one of the signers of the Constitution. These are portraits that had been done in their own lifetime because he wanted to get a, a real accurate and authentic sense of what these people look like. Uh, he studied the dress, the apparel of the day. Uh, and, and the most interesting thing that I learned is that he, he actually went and sat in the room, the assembly room in Independence Hall on September 17, 1936, just so he could get a sense of the way light and shadows would fall across the room on that very day. Oh, wow. uh, more than a century earlier when they signed that constitution. So he was really devoted to giving a, an authentic accurate sense of, of what it might have looked like in that room on that auspicious day. That that's almost like getting in a time machine, right, and going back to the moment, and so that he could experience it himself. That's the closest he could get, of course, uh, to doing that. Incredible. Now he also, I mean, if he was researching how things looked and what they looked like, did he also research the discussions at the convention so that he could bring that to life, the personalities of the people in the room, the things that they they researched when they did the Constitution. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, and uh, I'll give you a, a couple examples. Uh, for example, in the center of the painting, sitting alone at a table, he has he has uh, portrayed James Madison. Uh, and there on the table in front of Madison are these crumpled papers. There's an inkwell and quill. And I, I think the idea he's trying to communicate is, you know, here's the driving intellectual force in the room. Uh, and, of course, much of what we know about the Constitutional Convention, we know because of Madison's notes. He took these really detailed notes of, of deliberation and, and, and speeches that were given. And, and so that reflects uh, this is a man who had studied the convention, what we know about it. And so I think we can say with, with great confidence, he read uh, the available records and knew the kinds of discussions uh, that took place in that room in those four months in which the Constitution was drafted. What what about the you know there's a uh, you you write about in your article and by the way folks the the article is easy to find at lawliberty.org and we'll have a link uh, at at wallbuilderslive.com today so you can get right over to the article it's so much in the article we won't have time to get from Professor Drosbach today but uh, a lot in there so so I did not I, this was brand new to me man I I did not know until your article uh, that the that the Bible is uh, is actually in this painting. That's right. And, and, and by the way, you're not alone in that respect. Uh, even the experts who have written academic articles and whatnot about the painting, it, it's the kind of work that has garnered that kind of attention. But in my study, even the experts have written about this painting have not noticed that in the lower corner of the painting, on a side table there in the, in the uh, assembly room where the document was signed, there is an open Bible. Now, let me just first point out that 
Um, I, I think we should note, of course, it's the Bible, and that's a noteworthy in and of itself, but it's open, right? This is a book that was in use mm. in Christie's uh, vision of what that's good. Uh, transpired there. It's not a closed book. There's actually clasps on that volume that could have been used, but no, he, he had the book open, indicating that this is a book that was being used. And we can also tell by looking very closely at the painting that the book is open to Matthew chapter 5. Now, that's an interesting sort of uh, uh, place to uh, turn to. Why, mm. why chapter 5 of, of St. Matthew's Gospel? Well, yeah. as many of your listeners will well know, this, of course, is, is the uh, text in which we, we read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, mm. This is where we read the Beatitudes. Um, this is a, a portion of Scripture that distills the essence of Christian ethics in my view. And so I think it's, it's not insignificant that he chose not only to have a Bible, but also a Bible that's open, and it's open to chapter 5 of St. Matthew's Gospel. So you're, you're, you're quite literally designing the, the framework of a society. You're saying, here's the rules by which, you know, essentially this, this society is going to work, and so the best instruction manual for how to treat our fellow man and treat our neighbor and, and live within that society— uh, is is opened right there to the 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 the, the most famous and 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 most um, influential part of that instruction in terms of how we're going to treat each other and what kind of ethics we're going to have and and how to live as you say in the article uh, a, a righteous disciplined life. This is incredible. I cannot believe we've <laughs> we've never noticed this before or talked about. It. I feel like we I feel like we've gone over to the Middle East and we've dug down into some you know we've <laughs> gone and found some arch architect you know some archaeological find. This this is great, Dan. This is awesome. Yeah, I I, I think it is a, a very interesting insight that the artist is giving us here. Of course, there's a degree of speculation. We don't know exactly, you know, what he had in mind and and why he chose Matthew chapter five. Sure. We can speculate, however, but I think there's a bigger story here that I I think we need to tell, and that is, did the Bible influence? the writing of the Constitution? And I think the answer is yes. And I think Christie discerned this when he was painting uh, the painting. I think in the most important respect, um, the Bible informed uh, the framers' anthropology, their view of mankind. They studied the Scripture, and they knew that man was a fallen, sinful creature. They had written Genesis chapter 3. And so what did they do in response? They crafted a constitution that took into account man's fallen state. And so they designed it with checks and balances, separation of powers that would restrain and tame our fallen nature. And so I think this is simply an instant an example of how the Bible informed the actual content of the Constitution. But, of course, it does so in other ways. For example, uh, in Article 1, Section 8, it, it, Congress is given the authority to fix the standard of weights and measures. This is a principle very familiar uh, to the reader of, of the Bible, who, uh, who understands in Deuteronomy 25, uh, for example, that, that we are instructed to have uh, fixed standards of weights and measures simply as a as a as a rule of honest economy, uh, in Article Three, there's a requirement that there be the testimony of two witnesses uh, in in uh, in trials for treason. We know this comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 17, and legal scholars through the ages have understood that these are constitutional provisions rooted in God's word. And I think Christie understood that and discerned that, and so I think quite appropriately he reminds us of 
one of the sources of influence in that room, and that being the Bible. Absolutely incredible. You know, normally when I hear depravity of man, it's a, some discussion of, you know, five-point Calvinism and, and going that, down that list. You point out in the article, I mean, right out of Federalist 37, uh, the phrase, the infirmities and depravities of, of, of human character. You point out in James Madison's notes uh, from, from you know, I guess about the middle of the convention uh, where he talks about a delegate talking about the depravity of man. I mean, this is remarkable. There's so much you've got in the article, the details to this that uh, I think every one of us need need to study. And and then you also have another article that is referenced in this article that we're going to include a link to on the Bible's influence on the Constitution, where you go into even, even further uh, detail on this. And this this is lost, honestly. To, I mean, very few people know this. And I, I live, breathe, and eat this stuff, and I didn't know a lot of these details that you've included here. Do you think there's a resurgence of interest in this sort of thing? I know we see it on our end and and frankly, I, I got to ask you when you speak like you are on the these things, have you been threatened to, to be canceled? I mean, as a professor at a university, I mean that's you're 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 different from from most. I'm I'm just curious for you personally, do you see a resurgence? And two, have you come under attack for pointing out these things? Well, you know, I'll tell you uh, when I have spoken on this subject or given public lectures, it's not uncommon for someone to approach me after I've spoken, and I can see their faces red, and I can almost see the steam coming out of their ears, and I kind of brace myself, saying, "Oh boy, they're gonna they're gonna lay into me," and they come up to me and they're angry. But this is what they say: They say, "You know, I, I went through twelve twelve years of of primary and secondary school. I went to college. I even studied politics." in college. I've even been to graduate school, and I've never heard this before. And mm. so I think it's an indictment in many respects of, of the current educational system that, that, uh, that this... Now, I don't want to suggest here that the Bible's the only influence. The framers sure. were well-read, and they drew on many, many sources, but I think we do a disservice. We fail to understand accurately the ideas that inform the Constitution if we don't include those biblical sources of influence. And, and I frequently encounter people who are angry that they have gone through uh, 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 half a lifetime of education and have never encountered um, these these ideas about biblical sources of influence up to this point. And uh, mm. I think that's unfortunate. So powerful. I think, uh, you know, in, 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 I think one of the last times we had you on was, uh, was your book, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. So you, you, you point out, uh, again, more, even more detail there. You've also got the Thomas Jefferson book on, on separation of church and state. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of, of resources that you've given us over the years that, that uh, you know, we want to encourage people to, to dive into. And we've got to get you on more often. We've gone way too long without, without having you on. Really appreciate the article, Professor. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for, for pointing these things out to us. And, and look forward to getting you back as soon as possible. Yes, sir, and thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. It was great. Folks, stay with us. We'll be right back with David and Tim Barton. Hey, friends, if you've been listening to Wall Builders Live for very long at all, you know how much we respect our veterans and how appreciative we are of the sacrifice they make to make our freedoms possible. One of the ways that we love to honor those veterans is to tell their stories here on Wall Builders Live. Once in a while, we get an opportunity to interview veterans that have served on those front lines, that have made incredible sacrifices, have amazing stories that we want to share with the American people. One of the very special things we get to do is interview World War II veterans. 
You've heard those interviews here on Wall Builders Live from folks that were in the Band of Brothers to folks like Edgar Harrell that survived the Indianapolis to so many other great stories you've heard on Wall Builders Live. You have friends and family that also serve. If you have World War II veterans in your family that you would like to have their story shared here on Wall Builders Live, please email us at radio at wallbuilders.com. Radio at wallbuilders.com. Give us a brief summary of the story and we'll set up an interview. Thanks so much for sharing here on Wall Builders Live. We're back here on Wall Builders. Thanks for staying with us. Thanks to Professor Drosbeck for joining us. Uh, guys, I'll never look at that painting again. I'm zooming in. I, I, can't, I keep pulling it up on my computer. I'm zooming in on the Bible now with my eyes now every time I look at the painting. Really, really cool stuff. I look forward to sharing this with people. Yeah, it really is cool. And and when you when you see that that painting of the Senator's Constitution, I've always looked at the faces. I know the guys up there. I know the biographies. And so I'm looking at faces. I've never, ever looked at what's on the table. I just assume they're signing the Constitution. Constitution. Well, there's that table beside that with the Bible on it. And not only is it a Bible, as Dan pointed out, it's an open Bible, which means, you know, it's like getting used, relied on. And, and then Matthew 5, and, and Dan was speculating about Matthew 5. Do you guys remember we had an interview with Jeffress a few weeks ago where he was saying basically Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's the whole gospel in 18 minutes. That's like the TED talk for the New Testament is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So that really is a, an essential uh, passage to have opened. I mean, that's significant. And I liked what he said is Matthew 5 is the essence of Christian ethics. And so that really does set the tone. And, you know, he's not speculating on that because even though this painting was done in 1939, and I don't think what Dan is saying is out of line at all because there's a book done by a professor at the University of Houston which specifically goes into the origins of American constitutionalism, and they document from the quotes by those guys in that time that the single most used source in 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 that era of writing the Constitution was the Bible. So there's a lot of evidence for that, and it's interesting that Christie had that back in 1939 before any of these studies were done. And as Dan pointed out, it's just because he went back and read all the originals. He read all the source documents. He, he read the, the biographies and looked at all the paintings. And that's, that's a really cool discovery to have that in that painting from 1939. Well, guys, even as Daniel pointed out, too, there are so many things specifically in the Constitution that come directly from the Bible. And, and you know, Dad, this is something that you highlighted when you uh, wrote so many articles that were part of the Founders Bible. And, and Rick, I know this last year, you did a journey taking people through the Founders Bible and going through those articles. There, there's so much evidence to the influence of the Bible in the founding era. And this is just fun that we have now one more example we can point people to that somebody that studied the the early history, even to do a portrait of these guys, recognized one of the most influential things in their life and in the Constitution was the Bible. This is a really cool example and a great article from Daniel. Well, we appreciate uh, Daniel joining us today. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Wall Builder Show. We stand undivided forever.